You know, sometimes you can uh, hear a story and you know where it's going before you even hear the end of it. And uh, this past week, uh, last Sunday, I told told my wife that I was going to get a haircut, and she said, "Well, it's about time," you know. And, and and she said, "It's sort of getting unruly," you know. And I and I agree, but I, I was letting it get that way because uh, one of the things that I look for is uh, anywhere I live, I want to find that one person that I would call a hair engineer, not a barber, not not a not a hairstylist. I want someone who has the precision of an engineer, and uh, and they're hard to find, you know. And a lot of times you find someone that's really good with hair, and uh, you know they just charge too much because they know they're good, you know. And and so, uh, but Timothy came, my oldest son, he came to me and said, "Dad, I think I found a hair engineer." I said, "You got to tell me who it is." So he told me who it is. I'm not telling you because you'll hog up all the spots, you know. But anyway, he told me who it is. And I thought, okay, I'm going to let my hair grow a little bit. And then I'm just going to go there and say, do what you can. And test her and see if, you know, she could really do a, a good job. And so um, sure enough, she did a good job. But I had, you know, I had some doubts at first because uh, Amy, when we were discussing me getting a haircut, she said, you know, well, maybe the care that she took making Timothy's hair perfect was because Timothy is young and attractive. And I said, yes. Because I could see where the rest of this was going. Timothy's young and attractive, but David, on the other hand. And so I, I really wanted her to finish that thought. And she said, and she caught herself, and she started smiling at herself, and she said, and, and you're a little bit older and still very attractive. And I said, whoo, you almost crashed that landing, didn't you? I mean, that plane was heading straight down, but at the end, you pulled it out. Had an emergency landing and nobody got hurt, you know, on that one. I could see where that was going. But uh, sometimes when you're reading a story, you're hearing someone talk, you don't know where the next chapter leads. And we've got something like that in the book of Romans. We've been traveling through the book of Romans. And just to give you a little bit of a summary, here's what Paul, the apostle who wrote the book of Romans in the Bible, he's been talking about. In chapter 1, Paul basically says that non-Jews, and that's a term the Bible calls Gentiles, non-Jews are under God's wrath. Why? Well, because they've done a lot of bad things. Chapter 2, Paul says, you Jews, and he's one of them, he's a Jew himself, he said, you Jews are also under God's wrath. But why? Well, because you judge the Gentiles for all the bad things they do, and by the way, you do the same thing. And so chapter 3 of Romans, everybody's in trouble. Chapter 4, Abraham, who lived about 4,000 years ago, Abraham came along, and he showed us how to get out of trouble. He showed us how to have a good, right relationship with God. How do you do it? By having faith in God, by believing in God. Chapter 5 of Romans. Jesus came to show us how, or really who, to have faith in. We have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are forgiven of our sins. Chapter 6. Therefore, 
You ought to live as if sin is dead to you, and you are dead to sin. Live like you're alive to God. Chapter 7. Sometimes this can be a struggle because we still live in this body that gets tempted to do bad things. Chapter 8. Therefore God has given us His Holy Spirit. And if we can walk in step with the Spirit, we can live a right life. Now if you ask me, at the end of chapter 8, you can sort of put a bow on it, tie it up real nice, and that's a great story right there. I mean, that's all I need to know, right? And so the problem is that's not what Paul does. In fact, if you've looked at Romans, there's another eight chapters to come. So Paul has a lot more to say, but if you look at the end of chapter 8, Romans 8 ends this way in verses 38 and 39. It says, for, Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, you read that, and you ask it. Let's quit preaching, go get lunch. You know, let's tie it up right there. But Paul has a lot more to say. Now, what we learn is that up to this point, Paul has been speaking primarily to his fellow Jews. And he's been telling his fellow Jews certain things. Now, why is he speaking to the Jews? Because they have the true knowledge of God right there at their fingertips. They've been given the knowledge of God and His law, and so he's been speaking to them. He's been speaking to them about the world and about themselves and about Abraham and about Jesus and about dying to sin and about battling the flesh and about living in the Spirit. Paul's been talking to them about all of these things. But now, in chapter 9, Paul changes audiences. He's no longer talking to his fellow Jews. He's talking to the rest of the world, which probably includes me and you. He's talking to us Gentiles. And so we find in Romans chapter 9 a message for us. Would you take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 9? And we're going to read verses 1 through 13 in Romans chapter 9. And when you found the place, would you stand with me, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word? I'll read out loud, and you can follow along in your Bible or on the screen. We're in a series called Romans Mercy to All, Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Paul writes, I am telling the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all. God blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. 
For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Father in heaven, I pray that you grant us insight into your word so that we might leave this room changed and that we might be able to even have an effect on other people that we run into this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever had your integrity called into question? I mean, probably at some point all of us have. You know, sometimes there's no basis for it. I mean, your motives, your your integrity gets called into question, and, and there's no reason for it. Uh, there's nothing you've done, but, you know, it sort of reveals that there's something going on probably in the life of the questioner that makes him or her want to question your integrity. You know, for example, I mean, let's say you get the flu, you know, and it's horrible. You're just, you're just, you wish you were dead. You just call in sick. You feel terrible. And you haven't had a sick day. You haven't taken a sick day in three years. You call your boss. You, you tell him you've got the flu. And, but your, your boss questions if you're really that sick. You know, the doubt that your boss has, that's on him. That's not on you. You've given him no reason to doubt. You haven't been sick in three years. You haven't called in sick in three years. You've proven by your works, by your life, that you have integrity. Same scenario. Let's switch it up just a little bit. You call in sick, but this time, it's the sixth time this year that you've called in sick. And every time that you call in sick just happens to be on a day that Texas Tech is playing a home football game. Now, when your boss questions you, why does he do it? The doubt caused in your boss's mind, that's on you. You've earned that doubt. I mean, any credits of integrity that you once had, you have now spent. Well, with that in mind, I want you to think about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, who's writing this, he knows who he is. He knows what God has called him to do. He knows that Jesus specifically and personally told him, I want you to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Take my message of salvation to those that do not yet have God's law. Take it to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles. Paul knows his role. And Paul, who is himself a Jew, do you think that he took that message from Jesus and he quit caring 
about his fellow Jews. Just because his primary goal is to reach Gentiles with the gospel, do you think that he just sort of turned his back on the Jews and said, you know what, I know you're my brethren according to the flesh, but I just don't care about you right now. I've got bigger fish to fry. No, that wasn't his attitude at all. In fact, if, it, if that had become his attitude, you'd have every right to call his motives into question. But I want you to hear Paul's heart. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9. We read, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Why? Why is Paul so sad? Why is he so grieved? It is for this simple reason, that many of his fellow Jews, they have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. You see, when you reject Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, what you're doing is you are rejecting God's offer to forgive you of your sins. You're saying to God, no, I reject what your son did for me. And you might wonder, well, what did Jesus do for me? Let me tell you exactly what Jesus did for you. You see, Jesus is God in the flesh. And the Bible says that Jesus died on a cross. He was crucified on a cross between two thieves. And when he died on that cross, what that did in a spiritual realm was it paid for the penalty for your sins against God. Because the penalty for our sins against God is death. Jesus died in your place. And the Bible says that Jesus was buried in a tomb and that he rose from the grave with a glorified body. And when Jesus rose from the grave, it was to give us eternal life so that we might too one day be resurrected. The Bible tells us that Jesus spent a few weeks making appearances to his disciples after he was raised from the dead and then he ascended to heaven and scripture says that one day he will return to this world as king and he will judge all of humanity. And when Jesus judges all of humanity, those who have trusted in him, who believe in him, will be with him forever. And those who have said to God, no, I don't believe in Jesus. I reject what you sent your son to do for me. The Bible says they will be cast into the lake of These are serious, real-life, eternal consequences that we face if we do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul is so grieved, because many of his fellow countrymen have rejected their own Messiah and the Savior of the world, and they face an eternity without God. I need to ask you, church, who are you grieved for? Is there anybody 
whose rejection of Christ causes you sorrow. You know, I've come to realize there are really two types of believers. There's the the type of uh, believer and church member that they go about their lives without a care in the world for their lost loved ones and friends. And they probably won't even care about their friend's eternal destiny until Judgment Day, and on that day it's too late. But there's another kind of believer who grieves for the lost. They pray for their loved ones to come to faith in Christ. They present their loved ones the best they can with an opportunity to follow Christ. They tell their story about how they know Christ. And they sometimes invite their lost loved ones to church because they know at church there might be an opportunity to hear about Jesus Christ and to respond. They know that they will, by bringing them to church, be surrounded by a loving spiritual family who will care for them. Which kind of believer are you? I mean, do you care enough to pray for people's salvation? Do you care enough about your loved ones to tell them about Jesus? About your relationship with Jesus? Or or maybe, it may be, that you don't pray and you don't witness because you just, you don't believe that part. I mean, you don't believe, perhaps, that a loving God would send anyone to hell. That a loving God would send a, a good person to hell. So let me clarify what God says in his word about hell. And about this idea, why would a loving God send good people to hell? Let's be clear about this. God created humans to be good and to live with him forever. He gave humans free will. The freedom even to disobey him and not believe in him. Some people wonder, well, why did God give humans the the freedom to disobey him because otherwise we wouldn't really have free will. We would be robots. We would be automatons. We would just be something. We'd be puppets that uh, really wouldn't have a free choice. But if God was going to give us this incredible gift of being free beings that can choose, then with that comes the possibility that we might choose to reject the one that gave us that right to choose. We might choose to reject God. And in fact... Humans chose the path of death. Death, let me explain what death is. Death is not extinction. There's a difference between death and extinction. Death is separation. Physical death is the separation of your spirit from your body. Spiritual death is the separation of you from God. Every one of us has already chosen a path of death. Not just physical death, but we've chosen a path that leads to eternal spiritual death. God did not force anyone to choose that. And God does not force anyone against their will to experience eternal death. It's our choice. So what has God done? 
He's given us an opportunity to escape eternal death. All we must do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's the one that defeated sin. He's the one that defeated death. So if we believe in him, that is our way of escape. If we freely choose to reject God's offer of salvation, how can we dare accuse God of being unloving? God made us good and we ruined it. God offers to rescue us and we reject it. And then we blame the one who allows us to make our own decision and go to hell. God has done everything to save us He's done everything to save our lost loved ones and friends. And so if we reject Christ, that's on us. And if our loved ones reject Christ, those of us who have received him grieve. Or at least we should. There should be unending grief in our hearts. Prayers every day for the salvation of our loved ones and our friends. How much was Paul actually grieving for his fellow Jews? Look at verse 3. This is amazing. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul says, I love my fellow Jews so much that if it were possible, I'd trade places with them so that they could go to heaven and I'd spend eternity in hell. For I could wish. Paul knew it was so important for, for Jews, his fellow Jews, to receive their own Messiah. And the reason it's so important is because they've received so many privileges up to this point. They've received everything that God could give any group of people up to this point. Look at verses 4 and 5. He identifies them. He says, these people, these are the ones who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons. God promised Israel, I'm going to adopt you as my own sons. You will be in my own family. These are the ones to whom belongs the glory of God. These are the ones to whom belong the covenants. What covenants? The covenant that God made with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. The covenant that God made with King David. They have the covenants. These are the ones who, who belong the giving of the law. When God said, I'm going to show humanity what my standards are, who did God give the Ten Commandments to? It was to Moses and to Israel. Not to any other people group. He gave it to them so that they could share it with the world. They've been given the standards of God. They've been given the law. They've been given the temple service. When the tabernacle was first installed, the tabernacle was this huge tent. And people could come into various layers of closeness to the very presence of God based on who they were. And in the very holy of holies, that's where the presence of God dwelt. And then later the tabernacle was replaced with a temple, a more structured building. But it was the same concept and. To run this temple complex took hundreds and literally thousands of workers so that all of God's people could come and make sacrifices and worship God 
who was given the privilege of running the temple? It was a tribe within Israel. They were given the promises. God's promises have been given to Israel. They are the ones who have the fathers. What fathers? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the fathers of the nation of Israel. And from whom, this is the part that's most amazing, from Israel comes the Christ, Jesus. From Israel, from this little forsaken, this little group of people that nobody much cared for except God himself, from this group of people comes the Savior of the whole world. And he is overall. He is God blessed forever. They have all of these privileges. And the question is this. If Jews have all of these privileges, then why is Paul grieved about their eternal state, their eternal fate? Because listen to me, it doesn't matter how many privileges you have. It's not about having privileges. It's about believing in Jesus. It's about believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the situation. God chose Jews to carry out his plan. But many of them have rejected the very plan that God has carried out. They've rejected Jesus, their own Messiah. Now the question becomes, well, if God chose a people to carry out his plan, and these same people reject, the end results of the plan, did God fail? I mean, did God not see this coming? Did God mess up? No. Verse 6. Paul writes, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. This is a very important concept that I want you to understand. Being part of God's people, it is not determined by your ancestry. It is not determined by your lineage. It's not determined by all these things that you cannot control, like your skin color. It's not, control, it's not based on your height. It's not based on who your daddy was, who your grandmother was. It's based on one thing, whether you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not all Israel is Israel. What Paul means by that is it's not a matter of biology. It's not a matter of ancestry. 23andMe cannot help you out on this one. It's simply a matter of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the truth is, in, in, in this truth, the truth that belief, not ancestry, not lineage, not heritage, Belief determines God's people. This can be seen in the children of Abraham. Look at verses 7 through 9. Here's example number 1. Nor are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants. Paul's making a distinction between Abraham having descendants, physical descendants, and Abraham having true spiritual children. Because there's a difference. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh or the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah 
will have a son. What's Paul talking about? Here's what, here's what he's talking about. Back 4,000 years ago from our time today, God promised a man named Abraham that he would have a descendant through whom God would carry out his plan for humanity. Problem. Abraham and his wife Sarah were without child. That's problem number one. So they didn't have any descendants. Problem number two. Abraham and his wife Sarah were old. They are past the childbearing years. And so they were too old to have kids. So what did Sarah do? She took matters into her own hands. She grabbed her maidservant, who was young enough to have children, and she said, here you go, Abraham. Here you go, my husband. You can have a child through my maidservant. Not, probably not a lot of women here who would do that, but she was trying to help God out with God's promises. Here, you can have my maidservant. You can have a child through that, and therefore God's promises will be true. And so Abraham did what he did, and Ishmael was born. Ishmael was the first child born to Abraham, but that's not what God wanted. God's promises would be kept through Abraham having a child with Sarah. And so Abraham believed God, and God did a miracle, and Isaac came along. Isaac, the second one born to Abraham, he received the blessing of being the firstborn. Isaac was the child that came because Abraham believed. Isaac was the child of belief in God. He was the child of a promise made by God. Not all of Abraham's descendants are Abraham's spiritual children. It's just those who believe. Here's another example of how belief, not ancestry, determines God's people. And it's Isaac's children. That same young man, Isaac, he grew up. He took a wife. Look at verses 10 through 13. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, but they're there in her womb, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, not because they did anything good or bad, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older twin will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob, that's the younger, I loved, but Esau, that's the older I hated. So here's the story. Abraham's son Isaac also needed to produce a child through whom God would continue to carry out his plan for humanity. And Isaac's wife, Rebekah, became pregnant with twins. Now normally, the first one that's born receives all the blessings of being the firstborn. But just like with his half-brother Ishmael, Isaac's sons would be an exception to that rule. Esau was born first, but Jacob ultimately received the blessing of being the firstborn. And it was through Jacob that God carried out, carried out his plan for humanity. It was through Jacob that eventually 
Christ the Messiah would come. Who made this determination? Who was it who chose Esau or Jacob? Who was it who chose Ishmael or Isaac? God did. It's his plan. And God can carry out his plan as he chooses. God knew Rebekah would have twins. And God chose the younger, Jacob, to be his vehicle to bring the Messiah. Some people have questions about this arrangement. They especially don't like verse 13, which quotes God in Malachi chapter 1 as saying, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. They don't, they don't like that. It's like, how could God hate Esau? How could God hate Esau when Esau's just a little, little, little baby not even born? How could God hate Esau? Listen, God didn't literally hate Esau with, with horrible, nasty emotions. Not, it's not that type of hate. The, verse 13 is not talking about emotions. It's talking about God fulfilling his plan through his chosen instrument. And so in Malachi chapter 1, which is quoted here, Malachi chooses a very strong, and really the Lord, because it's the Lord speaking, chooses a very strong idiom, a very strong phrase to describe exactly how absolute and how resolute God was in his choice of Jacob. And the idiom describes the difference between loving and hating. It is to that degree that God said, this is my choice. So don't misunderstand and think that God had, had punitive hatred in his heart and terrible emotions toward Esau. It's not that at all. You know, we use idioms all the time. And we know what they mean. People say, well, I'm dying for football season to start. Really? You're dying? Do we need to call an ambulance? A hearse, maybe, because you're dying? No. It's a saying it just means it shows how much I really want football season to start. That's what God was saying in Malachi 1, which is quoted here in verse 13. Jacob I loved. It is Jacob who is the one that I have chosen to carry out my plan. And God might even add this, and I don't have to clear it with anybody. Because he is sovereign. He does as he wishes. Who can tell him otherwise? None of us. The big point of this passage is this, that God's people are not made up of people of a certain DNA. God's people are not made up of people of a certain lineage. God's people are not made up because of who your daddy or your mama is or your grandmother or what they've done. God's people is made up of believers. And if you want to be part of the people of God, you want to be part of that audience that is not thrown into the lake of fire, there's one thing to do. And it's to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to follow him.